right. Good, good, good. Well, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and take that out or turn that on and make your way toward Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 5. We are continuing this morning our current study series uh, entitled Jesus Is, and of course the idea uh, behind this is okay. Um, this faith is about following Jesus, about imitating Jesus, and according to the Apostle Paul, being transformed into the image of Christ. Uh, and so that begs the question, then, who is Jesus? Um, what is he all about? And so this is our attempt to um, at least, uh, I don't know if we would say it as strongly as answer the question, but it's our attempt to explore earnestly uh, who is Jesus and what is he all about. Okay, so for this morning, let me start kind of with my own personal thing, um, and I suspect that it's not uh, exclusive to me. I suspect that we all kind of have this uh, on one level or another. So I have this question about my faith. Um, actually, I have a lot of questions about my faith, but I have this particular question about the whole idea of following Jesus, walking with Jesus, living for Jesus, however you want to say that. Okay, so here's kind of how the question works. We understand that Jesus is Lord, right? That's the, that's the, the free word version of the gospel announcement, according to the earliest Christians. The good news is the announcement that Jesus is Lord. Different ways of saying that. Jesus is king overall. Jesus is victorious overall. Jesus is ruler overall. There is no sovereignty over the sovereignty of Christ. He is king of kings, Lord of lords. I mean, we can say it, and it has been said uh, in, in lots and lots of ways. And so that is the declaration of the earliest Christians. And it's not that Jesus will be that someday. Rather, he is all of that today, right here, right now. Jesus is right now Lord, okay, we understand all that. This is what the scriptures say about him, and we accept that his resurrection from the dead is a part of testifying to that reality. We get it. Jesus is king, Lord, ruler, overall, victorious, right now. I get it, okay. At the same time, there remains so much in the world that is so unlike Jesus, right? So here's my question. How is it that Jesus can be king, ruler, over everything right now, and at the same time, there's so much in his world that is inconsistent and upside down relative to Jesus' personality, style, teaching, relative to his kingdom announcements? How is it that Jesus could be Lord right now, and simultaneously, there's so much in his world that breaks his heart. That's another way to say it. How is it that Jesus could be king over the world right now, and at the same time, there would remain so much in his world that breaks his heart? Things like injustice, oppressive systems, oppressive relationships, victimization, abuse, disenfranchisement, uh, alienation, all manner of dehumanizing forces remain in the world, violence, relationships ripped apart, on and on we could go. 
all of this in his world right now while he is king over his world, right? So there's like, I'm, I'm trying to say that's my question. There's, we could call it attention. How do we resolve this tension? And I'm, I'm not, you know, the first person to, to point this out or even the first person to ask this question. In fact, I think this is a question that all followers of Christ have asked on, in one way or another on one level and have more or less answered on one level um, more or less. And so far, I'm talking about this tension in very broad, philosophical, impersonal, kind of abstract terms. But you know as well as I do that this tension is also very personal, I think. Uh, well, I know it is very personal to all of us, right? Like so even in your own story, every time you or I have suffered a broken heart, we know that Jesus is all about healing the brokenhearted. Um, every time that you or I have been rejected by some social group, it remains the reality that Jesus the King and ruler over all is all about embracing the outcast. <laughs> um, every time that you have been harmed by someone else's broken promise, Jesus the King over all is all about faithfulness. Every time you've been let down by someone's deceit, perhaps, or untrustworthiness otherwise. It remains the reality that Jesus, the king over all, is all about truth and life. So you get the idea. We all live in this tension. We can state it kind of in the big, broad, philosophical, abstract, but when it boils down to it in my story and your story, the tension is there as well. And so this is not just some interesting abstract question to discuss over coffee this is actually very real and sometimes very painful reality that we live in and so how are we supposed to understand this how do we resolve this tension is this tension resolvable um and before we take steps into my proposal for how to address this tension i want to just sketch briefly um, a couple of ways that others have attempted to resolve this tension. Um, and the first attempt, and this relates to our, our study series titled Jesus Is, the first attempt to resolve this tension, um, I'm going to characterize as um, the attempt to uh, conceive of Jesus as king of the interior. <laughs> um, in other words, some Christians have attempted to resolve this tension by turning Jesus into an interior king. That is, his rule, his reign, all that sort of talk means that he rules and reigns over you as an individual on the inside of you. He becomes king over your choices, your decisions, your values, your morals. And that's where you get into moralism masquerading as Christianity. Um, this is the sense in which Jesus is Lord. When Christians say that Jesus is Lord, what they mean is Jesus is Lord over our values, over our internal lives. Um, and also, uh, I just want to say that uh, this idea actually kind of flies in the face 
of so much of what Jesus taught and said and did. I, I want to say, you know, aside from that, um, I don't know of a king who relies upon permission to rule as king. Um, but secondly, there is so much that Jesus has to say. Yes, he does have a lot to say about our interior world, um, but he also says enough and does enough to make it clear that his own belief was that he was actually changing the world for the better. That is what kingdom means after all. Kingdom signifies the totality of everything. And so it seems to me to reduce Jesus to king of the interior, uh, uh, well, I'll just say it, it seems to me like a cop-out. Um, and then the second common attempt to resolve this tension, I'm going to describe it as conceiving of Jesus as Lord-elect. <laughs> Not that Jesus is Lord now, but that he is going to be Lord in some future point. And so, yeah, Christians, Christians can say that Jesus is Lord, but what we really mean is that Jesus is Lord over some future reality that is still yet to come, that later in some future age, then Jesus' lordship will be kind of in that total sense, and for right now, Jesus really is Lord of the interior, the personal individuals who give Jesus permission to rule in the here and now. Um, and to that, I want to say certainly we can agree that there is um, a time to come when Jesus rule the earth as the world's visible king, and that time will come. But again, this attempt to resolve the tension ends up in the same place as the other explanation ultimately, which is to say that for now Jesus is king, but he's only king if you allow him to be king. If you choose him to be your personal interior king, then Jesus is king, and his rule happens inside your own life. Um, and this is the dynamic that becomes this very private, personal religion. And it could actually become a kind of faith that could dissolve into this inner, personal, interior faith that actually could become quite content to allow the world around oneself to continue in suffering and injustice and chaos. And there's just nothing in the life, the example, the teaching of Jesus that would resonate with such a notion. There's nothing in the life, the teaching, the example of Jesus that would resonate with the idea that my faith in Christ is interior to me, uh, and it's of a future concern. Uh, and so for now, and you know as well as I do, um, there are a number of Christians who seem to uh, subscribe to this, that, the, that the, the systems of the world, injustice and chaos and suffering, is more or less a matter of uh, individuals inviting Jesus, giving Jesus permission to be king in their life. Um, see, I think what we see in the scriptures, what we see in the story of history, is something bigger than that, something more profound than that, something far more transformational than that, something far more beautiful, actually, than that. I think what we see in the scriptures about Jesus' rule is that Jesus' rule, by design at least, is something that shapes and reshapes the world around us, something that shapes and reshapes society. Jesus' rule is something, by design, Jesus' rule is something that genuinely heals not only individual lives, yes that, 
but not only individual lives, but also heals and transforms the way the world works. And so, the tension. How can Jesus be king right now, really, and at the same time, there's so much in his world that breaks his heart? How can it be? How do we resolve that tension? Well, today, we're going to look at um, a passage of scripture, maybe we could say, I, I would venture to say, uh, this may be the most famous portion of the most famous sermon that Jesus preached. It's actually a sermon that Jesus uh, preached and has become, you know, uh, the most famous portion of Jesus' most famous sermon. It's a sermon that was delivered from the Mount of Olives, and so we call the sermon as a whole. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It begins as we have it. Matthew chapter 5, and the sermon begins with what sounds like a poem, what feels like a poem, what reads like a poem. It's a rapid-fire succession of these nine statements that all begin with the word blessed, in English that is. The Latin word for blessed is beatus, uh, and of course for a very long time the Bible in Latin was the most prevalently used uh, Bible in the church, at least church in the in the West. Um, and so because of that repeated word in Latin, beatus, these nine statements are referred to as the Beatitudes. The original Greek word is actually a little Greek word, makarios. It means fortunate, well-off, or even happy. One English translation translates the Greek word makarios as happy. Um, which is striking right from the start because what Jesus says in each case after the repeated refrain, blessed are those who, uh, what Jesus says after the blessed are those is the description of someone who's not usually thought of as being happy or fortunate or well off. In fact, quite to the contrary, that's one of the twists of these beatitudes. Let's just read it and then see what to make of it. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There they are, the Beatitudes. Raise your digital hand if you've ever tried to memorize the Beatitudes. Maybe we were growing up, Sunday school, memorize the Beatitudes. Yeah, it's a great, great uh, exercise. Um, so we're going to explore these Beatitudes, not one by one, but as a, as a collection. We're going to explore these today and really just ask the question. And then again, my proposal is that this introduction to this sermon bears upon our question about about the tension, and we're going to get there, but what I 
feel like we need to do before we get, get there is we need to talk about what these statements are not before I present my proposal for what they are. Um, I think we need to talk about what these Beatitudes are not. And, th and the first one is really rather obvious. It may come across, um, uh, it may come across, uh, well, I'm not sure how it'll come across, but it's actually pretty obvious when you look at it. These are not timeless truths about the way the world actually is. Right? So if you, if you step back from these statements and take off kind of your Sunday school vibe, um, and I just want to say it like this, maybe even a bit more starkly, um, what Jesus says here just isn't true. Um, that is, if this is meant to be just good teaching, right, like a good preacher just telling it like it is, as we say it, um, if this is meant to be just good teaching of someone telling it like it is, this is clearly not that. Because this is not the way life is. In fact, if Jesus meant for this to be a series of statements about life as it actually is, uh, we would just have to say he was wrong. Because the reality is, for example, those who mourn in this world most often are not comforted. Um, what is actually the reality in this world is that the merciful are not shown mercy. What's reality, if we're going to tell it like it is, the future of the, the, the merciful is that they're going to be stepped on. That's the way the world actually is, right? Um, the reality of the world as it is, the meek, Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, but the reality of the world that we live in, I mean, can we just be honest? The meek usually don't inherit anything except being ignored and pushed aside. I mean, that's reality. If we're going to tell it like it is, then if you're going to tell it like it is, then you need to say, what you need to say is, hey, meek, prepare to be ignored. Prepare to be passed by. Prepare to be stepped on. In our world, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness actually very rarely see it. What do we see mostly? What we see mostly is injustice. The, the reality is in our world, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness flat out go hungry. That's the reality of the world that we live in. So Jesus begins this sermon with a series of statements that simply can't be taken as just good teaching. This is not a preacher telling it like it is. This is clearly something else, something other than that, but still begs the question. So then what is it? What is this poem? Well, the word blessed at the beginning of each statement gives us a clue that we need at least to begin to answer that question. Makarios, that's the Greek word. Blessed, fortunate, happy, well off are you. Everybody, this is not commentary. Jesus is not giving us commentary on life as it is. To the contrary, Jesus is making an announcement. This is a proclamation. He's saying, I've got good news for the poor in spirit. I've got good news for those who mourn. I've got good news for the meek. I've got good news for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, Jesus is not giving us good advice. He's giving us good news. This is an announcement Jesus is making into the current state of what is in the world. Jesus knows full well what the world is like, was then, is now. He knows full well exactly what the world is like. And Jesus is making an announcement of something fresh, something new, declaring what is coming 
into the reality that is in this world. Now, that's a start at getting us to our answer. The second thing that these Beatitudes are not is this. This is not instruction about how to behave in order to be blessed by God. Unfortunately, these statements have been taken that way by Bible readers all too often. Um, Jesus is not saying, if you live like this, then you'll be blessed by God. This is not a list of virtuous behaviors for people who want to be blessed by God. No, this is an announcement of a whole new reality that is breaking in to the world and which Jesus intends will set right and reorder the current state of things in the world. I mean, think about it. If Jesus were making statements about who is well positioned in the current state of things, who would it be? It would be the rich, the powerful, the aggressive. Those are the people who appear to be blessed if we're just going to make commentary on the world the way it is. I've got good news for the rich. You'll inherit the earth. That sounds about right, right? Um, I've got good news for the aggressive. You will be filled. <laughs> That's the way the world is. I've got good news for the loudest, the most vindictive, for the complainers. You will receive mercy. You keep complaining, you keep whining, you'll eventually get mercy. That's the way the world works. That sounds more like it if we are describing the current state of things in the world that we live in. But Jesus is clearly not doing that. He is announcing a whole new order, a whole new state of things in which the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, are somehow no longer on the bottom, somehow no longer pushed aside, somehow no longer brokenhearted, but instead, these people who are uncelebrated, typically in the world as it is, in this new reality that Jesus is announcing, these people can celebrate and be celebrated. These are the people, Jesus says surprisingly, the poor, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the people who are the most well-positioned in this new reality, this new world, this new, here's the key word, this new kingdom that is breaking in, in and through Jesus. These statements actually sound like a description of the world upended, everything turned on its head, or perhaps we should say everything turned right side up, <laughs> where up is down and down is up. Those who are on the bottom are suddenly on the top, blessed, fortunate, happy, well off. Those who are in a desperate position are suddenly full, satisfied, joyful, not because their position has changed, but because the order of the world has changed. That's the deep irony embedded in these statements. Thirdly, what these Beatitudes are not. These are not statements that will only come true after death, somewhere in a disembodied heaven or in a future age to come. We need to grapple with this honestly before we move forward. There is a temptation to make the assumption uh, uh, that, that Jesus is announcing some future reality that you'll experience you know, someday after you die, something like that. Some of these statements even sound that way. When he says something like, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or great is your reward in heaven. Some have thought, well, that means that this is something that applies after you die. But I just want to say, this is a misunderstanding of heaven. Heaven is God's space where full reality 
exists. Heaven is not an address. Um, heaven is close by our reality. In, in ancient Jewish understanding, which Jesus fully inherited from, heaven and earth are God's space and human space, and they overlap and interlock. That's what the temple always was for the Jewish people. It's the place where heaven and earth came together. And it was always seen as a harbinger, as a, a vanguard of what God was ultimately up to in the world. Not, not the people of the world leaving earth and going to heaven, but as heaven invading the earth. That's the ancient Jewish understanding. And the temple is seen as the, um, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? If, if there's a, this is probably not a good reference, but like if there's a, if there's a war, if there's a battle, a war going on and there's a center for that war, like the, what's the word for that? I'm looking at my Air Force guy. Anyway, the temple was seen as the, the, the core center of what God is ultimately going to do throughout the whole world. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the water covers the sea, for example. That's the ancient Jewish understanding where Jesus inherited from. So one day, heaven and earth will be fully and completely joined together forever when the full true reality will be unveiled. Jesus also says, by the way, the meek will inherit the earth. That certainly can't be talking about a disembodied heaven after death. And so these statements should not be seen as promises that will be fulfilled like in heaven after you die in a disembodied reality. No, Jesus is describing something that he expects to be reality here and now, more or less. So these statements aren't about a future age to come. So again, what are they? How are we supposed to take all this? And I want to suggest that the answer to that question actually comes to us loud and clear a little bit later in the same sermon. What we have is Matthew chapter 6 is actually a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. We're further deep into the core of the sermon where Jesus gives what we call the Lord's Prayer. And he says, pray in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here it is, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, let's just hold on to those words, on earth as it is in heaven. That's it. That's the key to understanding who Jesus is and what he is up to, that the current reality of heaven, where God is presently fully in charge, would become the experienced reality of life on earth, that the life of heaven would become the life of earth, that just the way it is, so to speak, um, just the way it is of heaven, of God's space, would become just the way it is on earth in our space, here in our world. That the earth, here and now, would be transformed to look like the present reality of God's space. I don't know how to say it. You can say it any way you want, but I'm just trying to say the same thing over and over again. Jesus, here's the reality. Jesus is inviting his followers to pray for, to long for, to yearn for, to hunger for, maybe even, maybe, just maybe, embody here and now the realities 
of heaven. Which brings us to kind of like if we just take a now, just take a giant, kind of take a step back and just think about the form of this sermon. This sermon begins with a poem. Think about that. Um, by the way, in classic, like if you go to if you go to seminary and take a homiletics course, which is a course about learning how to preach, um, it's kind of a classic. It's almost even kind of snickered about. The classic homiletic structure, even in, in our time, we call it three points and a poem. That's what they'll teach you in seminary. When you bring a good sermon, bring three points and close with a poem, right? Well, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that common way of teaching homiletics is inherited from the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus didn't end with a poem. Jesus began the sermon with a poem. So just think about it structurally, right? Like in terms of crafting a sermon. A poem in any context, including in this one. A poem is an invitation to think. It's an invitation to imagine. A poem is an invitation maybe even to feel something new, to feel something you haven't felt before. That's the way poetry works, right? It works, it works on your head, it works on your heart, it works on your mind, it expands your vision, your thinking. That's, that's what a poem is. And so, in this case, so think about it, with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins the sermon by inviting his hearers, then and now, to imagine the, I don't know, the tone and texture, the feel of this new reality that is breaking into the world. Jesus doesn't have his head stuck in the sand. He knows exactly what the world is like presently. And yet he is bold enough, visionary enough, we would say spirit-filled enough to announce a new alternative reality as one that is breaking into and healing the current reality. Now, imagine for a moment what effect that would have upon the world. If the followers of Jesus were to actually long for, yearn for, hunger for, dream about on earth as in heaven, what would that mean for our world? What would begin to occur in our world? I tell you, I think what Jesus believed is that if his followers were to long for, yearn for, dream about, imagine on earth as in heaven. I think what Jesus thinks is that the world would begin to be transformed, healed, redeemed into a place, into the beautiful reality that God intended in the first place. And so in reality then, Jesus is in fact calling his followers then and there and here and now to yearn for, long for, dream about, and even to live into right now as if heaven were breaking in to earth. Because that's exactly what has happened in Christ himself. Heaven breaking in to earth. This is, everybody, this is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most compressed um, example 
of what we have of, of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is, and that the kingdom of God is breaking in through him and through his followers. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole and the Beatitudes in particular, these are a call. They represent a call for the people of God to begin to live here and now in a way that will make sense in God's promised future as it continues to unfold in the world. Because, in short, with the arrival of Jesus, the future is here already. You see, this is Matthew chapter 5, the, during the life and ministry of Jesus, obviously. But, but in just a very short time, on the day of Pentecost, this is exactly what Peter will say. I mean, what I'm trying to cobble together here is exactly what Peter uh, will say when the Holy Spirit is poured out onto the followers of Jesus. And the onlookers think, you know, these people, how can they be drunk? It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That whole scene, you can read it, Acts chapter 2. Um, uh, and what Peter says when he gives a response to the people is, uh, well, this, what's happening right now is what the prophet Joel predicted would occur in the future when through the prophet Joel generations ago, God said, one day I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so what Peter's answer basically is, what's going on is the future has arrived. That's essentially what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. And where did, where did Peter inherit that way of thinking? Well, he inherited it from Jesus. Because what Jesus was saying throughout his entire ministry is that the future has already arrived with me and my ministry, Jesus said. And so, as upside down as all of this may seem to us right now, and Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they'll receive mercy. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. As upside down as all of that seems, in reality, what Jesus is announcing seems upside down for, to us because we are the ones who are upside down. Um, Jesus is actually bringing the world right side up and calling for us to live into that reality, even if it appears inverted, <laughs> but calling us to live into that reality. I want to suggest a term for this. I don't know if this will work for you or not, but um, I want to suggest a term, and maybe we're making up a word today, I'm not sure. But I want to describe this as visionary apprenticeship. Now, before you write that off as, you know, just a big fancy abstract term, <laughs> I want to ask you to hold on just a second and let me defend that term. Um, visionary apprenticeship, what it means to be an apprentice to be, is to be a follower, so a follower of Jesus in a visionary type capacity. And you already know how to do this. Um, you do it all the time, maybe even without realizing it. You do this, you practice this kind of visionary living. Every time a preferred reality that could be and should be captures your imagination, and you begin to behave in ways within the current reality that are designed to bring about the preferred reality, that's visionary living, right? And we do that all the time, right? So, so a person who is captivated, let's say, um, by, you know, I need to finish my college degree. And, and that goal, that desire, captures the imagination. And this person now, in the current reality, still, don't I don't have my degree yet, but now I've already begun to live in ways that are bringing about 
that, you know, having the diploma in hand, whatever. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. So it's really not that far removed from our experience. Or, or let's say um, a married couple finds themselves drifting in opposite directions in life, and maybe there's tension and conflict and strife between them, and suddenly, like, they just come to their senses and wake up and remember why they got into this thing in the first place, and this is never what we wanted our relationship to become. And so suddenly this couple begins to dream about a new reality for their relationship, one of intimacy and harmony and all of that. And this couple begins to live in ways that are designed to bring about that preferred reality that could be and should be. That would be a, an example. So, and we could go on with, with examples. I know tons of school teachers and school administrators who go to work every day, not because of what their school is, but because of what their school could be and what their school should be for our kids. That's visionary living. Okay, now, what's the key? What's the catalyst? What's the fuse for all of this redemptive living? Whether they're the examples that I'm talking about or in the example of as a follower of Christ. The essential, the must-have element is vision. You must first be able to imagine the preferred reality that could be and should be. That's the catalyst for it all. So in this case... What Jesus is inviting us to do is allow the Father to capture our imagination with his heart, with his dream for a restored world. And that's what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving his followers a vision, the vision, of what could be and what should be on earth here and now as in heaven, even as heaven continues to break in to earth. So... It's the same for us in every specific application of this in our own lives. Vision is the essential catalyst. Jesus is giving us here the big picture. The kingdom of God is breaking in, and this is what it looks like on earth as in heaven. I want to kind of bring this in for a landing with a little bit of a thought experiment. I want to ask you a question. Uh, and there's no right or wrong answer to this, but I just want to ask you a question and you just answer in your mind, in your imagination. What if, what if all of the hell in your life was replaced by heaven right now? And just imagine, I'm asking you a question. What if all of the hell in your life were replaced with heaven. Now, when I say the question that way, we all know, <laughs> we all know what we mean when I say the hell in your life, the hell in my life. We know what this is. We've all got hell in our lives. You know exactly where your imagination goes when I think about the hell in my life. Pain, disappointment, suffering, what, you know, conflict, whatever. That's where our minds go. Here's my next question. When I ask that question, what if all the hell in your life were replaced by heaven? Where does your imagination go 
when I ask the question in that way. What, it, what would it look like for heaven to replace the hell in my life? Where does your mind go? What kinds of things do you think of? Chances are you're thinking of things like healing, maybe physically, relational healing. You're thinking about disrespect being replaced with mutual respect. You're thinking about um, gentleness in relationships, perhaps. You're thinking about wisdom in decision-making. You're thinking about acceptance and embrace rather than rejection. You're thinking about love rather than violence. You're thinking about consistency and order rather than chaos. You're thinking about peace rather than turmoil or conflict. You're thinking about faithfulness rather than self-interest or untrustworthiness. You're thinking about truthfulness rather than deceit. You're thinking about promise-keeping rather than promise-breaking. In other words, you know what you're doing? You are imagining droplets of heaven on earth. You are imagining on earth as it is in heaven. You are imagining droplets of kingdom of God raining down onto and into your world. That's exactly the sort of visionary exercise that Jesus is doing with his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. See, bottom line, very early in his ministry, Jesus cast this vision, a big vision, a strange vision, a beautiful vision. And Jesus invites his followers both then and there and here and now to participate. And this is the key word over and over again. To live into that vision. To participate even now. And through, through that dynamic, we actually become the vanguard of the inbreaking kingdom of God in the world. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that what if, when I said what if all the hell in your life were replaced with heaven. Take that what if and focus on the heaven side of it. What if all the hell in my life were replaced by heaven? Focus on the heaven part. What it would look like to see it, to imagine it, to live it. And let that thinking awaken and ignite your heart. And then begin to behave in ways that anticipate in advance the full arrival of that preferred future. And as you're doing that, what you'll actually be doing is what Jesus called his followers to do 2,000 years ago and every day since. And again, I go back to Peter and remind you that what God has done by his spirit, both for Peter and his crew back then and for you and I today, has filled us with his spirit. He has inhabited us with the life 
of the age to come as the vanguard, living into it and bringing about the reality. So my attempt to answer the question or address at least, I don't know about answer the question, but address the tension that I established at first. How can Jesus be King of kings and Lord of lords and yet there remains so much in the world that is so unlike him and that breaks his heart? My answer to that tension, and it's not an answer, but I'm going to use the word, um, is this. God has always intended to heal and transform the world through his people. It's the story we receive in Genesis. That God created the world and everything in it, and it was good. And he created human beings in his image and commissioned human beings. The language is to take dominion. Um, that gets mixed up in our modern usage of the word dominion. It sounds heavy-handed. But what it means is that God has commissioned humanity to bring about, to carry out his wise and loving rule throughout creation. God has always intended to do it through his people. And so, in that sense, the answer to the question, like we want to stand back and say, how could it be that Jesus is king and yet there remains so much in the world that's not like him? The answer is us. We are called to participate and bring about the vision of the beatitudes of the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, we love you. Thank you for this study this morning. And I just pray, um, Lord, that where my words leave off, that you would take us on a tour into the specifics of where it is and how it is that we can make this a reality in our lives, in our world, in our story, in our relationships right now where we're at. Um, and I pray, Father, that you would do that creatively, that you would lead us clearly into being kingdom people in big ways, in small ways, in visible ways, and in invisible ways. Lord, we want to embody here and now the future that you intend, that you have um, hidden and are now revealing for the world. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen.